0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Bibles now, if you would please, to Exodus Chapter 25, Old Testament Exodus, chapter 25. Last year, during the week of March the 8th, 2020, I prepared my weekly sermons as usual, and I was ready to preach the 39th sermon in our Sunday night series on the tabernacle. The scare of the coronavirus was... Ramping up, and we received news that churches in Sonoma County needed to clean and disinfect all the surfaces and the surfaces in the church building that would help stop the spread of the virus. That's what we were told. We were told to spread out the pews and keep everyone that wasn't in the same family at least six feet apart. We were told to wear masks and not to sing. And then, in almost a, I think what we would call a drastic measure, it was determined that all churches must shut down, and we were not able to have services in this building. And during the time that we were closed, four or five of us would would come on a weekly basis, and we would produce a, a video with a sermon and singing that you could watch on your television or view on your other devices on Sunday mornings, and those several months that we went through were agonizing. They were hard on the church. I don't care too much to talk about them any longer, really, and this is, this is more than I want to say about it, I think. I don't want to relive those days. Uh, COVID-19 has affected all of us in our health physically and also mentally. It's affected our social activities, And I'm sad to say that it's affected some of our church members spiritually. In March of 2021, we came back to church to resume worship. But when we did, the structure of our services changed. We don't have the same Sunday schedule that we had before. And now I am preparing one sermon each week to preach on Sunday mornings. Last week in our Sunday afternoon class, I explained some more personal details for reasons that we're doing things the way that we do them now. Uh, It's necessary, and if you want to catch up on what that information was and what was discussed, uh, you can talk to some of the members that were here. You might catch me alone sometime, and I'll, I'll talk to you more about that. Well, still in the back of my sermon Bible is a copy of the last... Sunday night sermon that I was scheduled to preach on March the 15th, 2020. And it was a sermon about the veil that hung in the tabernacle that separated the holy place from the most, most holy place. And that veil is a, was a curtain and behind it was the Ark of the Covenant, Israel's most sacred article of worship. My sermon was the third part of a series on the veil. The first two parts have been preached on the Sunday evenings previous. And it's been about 20 months now since I last preached on the tabernacle. And since that time, I've wanted to conclude the series. I have about 10 sermons that I was unable to bring to the pulpit. So I've decided it's time. And I want to return to the subject of the Sunday night series and finish it here in our Sunday morning worship time. And what I've done is to alter the presentations of it to fit better for a Sunday morning service, make it more suitable for Sunday mornings. The titles are changed. The numbering of the sermons is changed. So if you were trying to keep up with all of that, it's all different now. And there are three sections of tabernacle worship that are left to finish. These are the Ark of the Covenant, the Mercy Seat, And really, one thing that I I do want to talk about, and that is the marvelous pillar of cloud that represented the Holy Spirit. And we're going to go into a study of the Holy Spirit at the end of of our series. But this message today is to reintroduce you to God's command for Israel to begin a new system of worship. It was given to them as they were established as a nation at Mount Sinai. And they were given at that time civil and religious laws that were governed them. Now in one way we could say that these civil and religious laws were one law because all of it reflected the righteous character of God and how they were, the people were to relate to God and how they were to relate to each other. And this is emphasized in the New Testament by Jesus reciting what he said are the two great commandments and that is... To love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. The law that God gave is his covenant. We just read that in Hebrews chapter 8. That is his covenant. That was the old covenant, the law that God gave them. And you should know this, that the Old Testament is foundational for understanding the New Testament. The Old Testament introduces Christ... Hundreds of years before he came to Bethlehem, most Christians are, are not aware of the many ways that our Savior is involved uh, is is uh, uh, is revealed in his pre-incarnation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament helps us to 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 understand Christ, and we will not know him as we should know him unless we have this Old Testament foundation. Now, it's been a long 20-month gap since the last time we looked at the tabernacle. There is information that we need to review, but you don't need to worry. I'm not going to go through 38 sermons that brought us back up to this point, so we're not going to do that. I'm not even going to preach that last sermon that I'd prepared on the veil. It will stay where it is, in the back of my sermon Bible. It'll fade away into history, and someday after I'm dead, somebody will read it. But I want to call your attention now to Exodus chapter 25, and this is what introduced Israel to their new formal system of worship. Their liturgy was not a recitation of scripture readings. Their liturgy was the tabernacle. Their worship was found in the ceremonies that Israel would practice. And that was a complicated system of sacrifices that must be made for various offenses, for obedience obedience and recognition of the one true Jehovah God. But most importantly, in the tabernacle was found the object of worship. He was not there in a visible form. He was not there as an idol to worship, as was common in the temples of the pagans, He was not there to be seen and touched. He was not there to be confined in a space and kept boxed in so that he could be moved only wherever they decided to put his pedestal. No, this is the tabernacle. God was there as God is everywhere. And God dwelled in the tabernacle in a special way. The pre-incarnate Son of God was with Israel and he was seen or manifested in the symbols. A golden lampstand that showed that he is the light of the world. A table with bread that showed that he is the true manna that came down from heaven. An altar of incense that showed that he is always interceding for his people. And those are just a few of the multiple ways it is shown in the tabernacle that Jesus is the Christ that he is God, that he is the Savior of the world. And I should not forget that on the outside of the tabernacle, there was a brazen altar that stood for his cross, where he went to die. This is where the sacrifices were burned, and that typified the cross where Jesus Christ gave his life for the sins of the world. And so when we talk tabernacle, we are discussing the Bible's most comprehensive demonstration of the life, the death, and the work of Jesus Christ in the redemption of his people. And I want to complete this series because in these last three parts, are, are uh, this is where the depictions of the most vital aspects of that redemptive work of the Savior are demonstrated. Now, if I could simplify, the tabernacle is Jesus Christ. And perhaps you don't understand that statement or what I mean... The Apostle John explained it in the New Testament. And this is what he said in John chapter 1. He said in verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was made flesh and dwelled among us. The Word is Christ." He became flesh, and thus he is the living word. He dwelled among us. And I said John explains because the word that he used there, dwelled, is the same word as tent or tabernacle. The reference is decidedly Jewish and was recognized as belonging to the Old Testament order of worship. So in other words, John was telling his readers that Jesus Christ in the New Testament is Jehovah God of the Old Testament. And 1,500 years before Christ came, there was a tent erected in the wilderness that Israel carried throughout their wanderings, and it was symbolic that God dwelled with them. Now, in today's message, I want to refresh your memory about this tent, and then in the next message, I'll begin sermons on the most significant of all the furnishings, and this was the Ark of the Covenant. So if you'll look in your Bibles, Exodus 25, we're going to read down to verse number 9. Exodus 25 and verse number 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. Ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which he shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet, and fine linen and goat's hair, And ram skins dyed red, and badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Since the Bible was completed, New Testament completed 2,000 years ago, God has not given us any further revelation. I know that that's a vigorously contested statement, because there are many who believe that, that God still speaks that he gives supernatural revelations, that he gives new information, and he may give that through dreams, he may give it through other means, some kind of miracle, he may give it through the strange gibberish of unknown tongues. The charismatic movement is built upon that premise, and so they encourage the use of sign gifts and gifts of knowledge and interpretation of dreams. And it's not unusual for their preachers to say that God spoke to them and that God told them something new that they were to say or God gave them a revelation that wasn't previously known. The Scriptures deny this. They tell us that the Word of God is inspired, that it is the full and complete revelation of God to man, and in the Word we find everything that we need that will perfect our faith, Everything that we need that will teach us what we need to know and can know about God, about God in this life, and what he expects from us. The scriptures also say in Hebrews that in the last days that God has spoken to us through his Son, that he is the living word. That's what we saw in John chapter 1. The written word, that's the final record of the living word. There is nothing to be discovered in a dream that has not already been revealed in the written word. The scriptures are their own testimony that the word of God is complete, that it is the full revelation of God to man, and it's all that God intended for us to know concerning knowledge and godliness. I can give you an example. There was a lady that called me just about two weeks ago, and she told me that God spoke to her. And so I asked her, what did God say to you? And she wasn't really clear about what God said. It said it had something to do with her boyfriend. And uh, so I was talking to her, and I said, well, if God spoke to you, will you do what God says? And she says, well, if it makes sense. I said, if it makes sense, what do you mean, if it makes sense? She said, well... I have to think about that, and I need to ask my husband about that. Well, she said, but he's not really my husband, he's my boyfriend, which indicates, you probably understand what that indicates. Uh, sort of like the woman at the well, the one thou us now is not thy husband. And so anyway, she claimed God spoke to her. Second Timothy says that the word is enough to completely equip us for all good works, and if the Bible says that the scriptures supply all that will perfectly develop the believer in life and godliness, then there's nothing else that we need. We have it all right here. And if you will not read your Bible to discover Christ and salvation and holiness and what God requires from you, then you will never discover it. Because there's only one way to get it, and that is through hearing and reading God's Word. The Bible is finished. It has been since the end of the first century. But here's the point that I want to make in this. That until the Bible was completed, God had other ways of revealing himself. From the creation of Adam until the revelation that was written by John, God used progressive revelation. The story of God, the story of redemption unfolded line upon line, precept upon precept until this redemptive story of Christ was was finished, at least as much as God would tell us. In the days of the patriarchs, the knowledge of God wasn't much dependent upon what was written. Um, not much was recorded on parchments until Moses wrote the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. Until then, God's word, God's will, what God had to say, was known, made known in different ways. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God spoke in various ways, in diverse ways. Sometimes God spoke through prophets. Sometimes Through the mediation of angels. Sometimes God spoke in signs and wonders. God spoke directly to Moses in an audible voice many times. Listen and see if this, this isn't marvelous. This comes from Exodus chapter 33. Where it says the Lord spoke with Moses face to face. Just as a man speaks to his friends. If you were here last week. That doesn't sound a whole lot like what I said, is it? I talk about speaking to, to God as a friend. The question is, may we speak to Jesus as a friend? And the answer to that question is yes. He doesn't speak to us audibly as he did to Moses. Neither have we seen God's glory as Moses did. And here's a very important point, that Moses was never confused about who was the authority in those conversations. And so this is the way that the worship of the tabernacle began. God spoke to Moses. He called him up on Mount Sinai and he gave him the stone tablets of the law. And at the same time, he gave him instructions for a building, that is for a tent of meeting, and all the constituent parts they would need for proper worship. He gave them instructions for making the articles of worship, not to worship. Articles of worship, not to worship. They built the lampstand. They built a table for bread. They built the magnificent Ark of the Covenant. And these articles were to reveal the God that they didn't know very much about. And I might stop there for just a moment to comment. When Moses was called to lead Israel out of Egypt, there were very few that knew Jehovah God. Most of Israel worshipped the Egyptian gods and so there was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt and it was those unbelievers that were the source of much trouble for Moses. When Moses stood before the burning bush, before he led them out, when God first spoke to him, God said that he would reveal his name. It was a name that, that they didn't know him by. And you remember that Moses himself had to be introduced to the one who spoke. That he was the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And God made himself known, and from this meeting would come a worship that would systematically reveal who God is. In the instructions that were given on Sinai, there were also five distinct types of sacrifices. These sacrifices were visuals. This is another way that God spoke. They were representative types and symbols and figures of the true. The furnishings, we read in Hebrews chapter 8, were made after patterns of things that are found in the heavens. That's explained in Hebrews 8 verse 5. Speaking of the Old Testament priests, that verse says again, the priests, that is, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. The tabernacle is this one huge home of symbols. It was the home of figures that spoke of the truths of the glory of God. Well, unfortunately, people don't always know what to do with symbols. As it was with Israel, so it is with Christianity down through the centuries. There's always the danger of symbols being turned into the truths that they signify. In other words, the symbols are turned into salvation, that they are salvation rather than a symbol of salvation. That happened in Judaism and it also happened in Christianity. The Jews turned to circumcision. That's a ceremonial law. They turned that into salvation. That's reflected in Acts 15, verse number one, where it says they taught that unless a person was circumcised according to the law, they cannot be saved. And that should never have happened because the Old Testament was always specific about this difference between the spirit and the flesh. Circumcision was symbolic. In the Mosaic Law, it's written, Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. There is no confusion that this speaks anything other than the spirit of the inner man. Physical circumcision was a sign of the covenant of God. This was a sign that God would save them as a people. It wasn't salvation itself. They weren't saved by the physical, but by the spiritual operation of God on their hearts. There is terrible confusion when people believe that their good works, that thing that they do, will satisfy God. People don't want to be saved by grace. They want to be saved by their way they want to be saved by their will their pride gets in the way they want to make themselves acceptable to god well the same is is true years later when the gospel of grace was perverted christian churches began to teach that baptism saves they taught that communion saves they taught acts of penance save they perverted the gospel changed it to their condemnation and so they change acts like baptism into acts that save. And that perversion is no different from the way that Satan tempted Israel in the wilderness. The scriptures warn us of this. And the explanation of these things in Hebrews tells us that all these things that they made were just symbols of the true. They're made after the pattern of heavenly things. They're not the real thing. They're the types of things that are real. Hebrews says that the types are replaced by better things. Did you remember us saying that? Seeing that word better in Hebrews chapter 8? That's pervasive throughout Hebrews. The better things are the real things. The things that are signified. And so you see that word better used multiple times in Hebrews. It says that Christ is better better than the old priesthood, that he's better than angels, he's better than Moses, he's better than Melchizedek. Christ is better than anything that's found in the old ceremonial law. But until Christ came and the word of God was completed, these types and figures were used in Old Testament worship. And then later when Christ came, he fulfilled the pictures that are found in the types. For example, he became... The light of the world that was demonstrated by that golden lampstand. He became the, the bread of salvation that nourishes believers. Just as physical bread nourished the priest at the tabernacle. Jesus Christ became the once for all sacrifice. That was indicated, pictured by the blood of bulls and goats. On the great day of Days of Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection, these types were opened up into the truth in a blaze of brilliant glory. They showed the character of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We might be puzzled about how much the ancient Israelites understood about what they were doing They made all these articles of gold. They sewed fabrics together to build a tent. They built altars to burn sacrifices. How much did they know? We might have some insight into that question by looking at the story of Job. Job probably lived before Moses. He was most likely contemporary with Abraham. That would have been before the written law, before the tabernacle and all that was given. And he understood much before the law was given. He knew about sacrifices. He knew about the depravity of the human heart. He knew the wrath and the judgment of God. He knew that there was a Redeemer that would one day come to this earth. He knew that there would be a resurrection of the body. And just as Abraham knew, he knew that we are justified by faith. Apparently, He knew much more doctrine than many New Testament Christians. Most Christians don't wonder about these things. How did Old Testament believers know? Some Christians say, does that really matter? Do we need to know that? What difference does it make? Can't we just talk about other things? We could, but I'd like to know. How did Job know all those things? I want to know, because they were important enough for for God to record it in a book about Job and about his sufferings and about his trials. Is it important to know why the Bible says that we are to have the patience of Job? Job's patience was wrapped up in the knowledge of all these doctrines. So why didn't he curse God and die as his wife advised him? He didn't. He endured Because he knew God. There was just something in the things that he saw in the revelation of God. There was a different revelation that told him there is hope in God. That God will redeem. God will justify. His friends gave him no justification. But in the end, God confirmed Job in his faith. So God put that in the Bible to give you an example of what it means to hold out faithful And what the reward for it will be. The Old Testament patriarchs knew about grace. They knew about justifying faith. They knew that faith in God is even demonstrated in sanctification. And I would say most New Testament Christians are far surpassed in their understanding of God. By their Old Testament counterparts who they think were just know-nothings. Didn't really know much at all. I can't fully explain what they knew from types and symbols. But obviously they knew that sacrifices were required, but that sacrifices would never save them. They were saved by justifying faith in the Redeemer. Well, you're waiting, you've been waiting. Let's get to that short outline. There are three important aspects of tabernacle worship that'll help refresh us before we go into the last aspects of the study. First... ...is the place of worship. Verse number 8 holds the key to the purpose of the tabernacle. Verse 8 says, "...and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them." Surely we can say that Israel's exodus from Egypt was a tremendous time of anticipation and anxiety. There were doubts and fears about leaving their homes to go into the unknown of the wilderness... But there's also no doubt that these were people that were blessed. There is no people that was blessed like Israel was blessed. It was more than 400 years since the promise was made to Abraham that God would make him the father of many nations. And it was now 200 years that Abraham's descendants had been slaves in Egypt. This was the nation in the boiling pot of its birth. Hundreds of years later, the prophet Hosea wrote... When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. When Israel was a child, isn't that interesting? Israel was a child, meaning that they were still in the infancy, the infancy of the birth state of becoming a nation. When Israel was a child, God called his people out of Egypt. So already in the beginning... There are 1,500 years before uh, Israel was fully formed as a nation, we have a prophecy of Jesus Christ. He is in view. This prophecy is repeated in Matthew chapter 2. It gets read in the Christmas story all of the time. It was fulfilled in Christ when Joseph and Mary took baby Jesus and fled into Egypt to be protected until the death of Herod. And then when Herod died and he was no longer a threat, God called his holy child out of Egypt. And they went back to Israel, and Jesus spent his childhood growing up in Nazareth. In the wilderness, God formed Israel into a nation. They were given the law at Mount Sinai, they were given their formal worship system of the tabernacle. And their deliverance from Egypt was a divine statement. And that statement was, Israel is my chosen nation. This is not part of my sermon, but I'll say that has not changed. Israel is still God's chosen nation. And one day will rise again and have a kingdom that is across the entire world. Well, perhaps the years of slavery had Beaten down their hopes that the promise to Abraham would come true. Israel might not have been sure. But when Moses met God at the burning bush, God renewed the promise. God spoke and he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God revealed his name. He said, I am. And he intended to bring his people out and to give them the land that was promised as their inheritance. He put his name, Jehovah, on his people. He stamped that name on them so that all the world would recognize that he is the one true living God. And without rehearsing the whole story, God showed his power through ten plagues brought on Egypt. Each of those plagues was a specific attack on Egypt's false gods. So what God did was to separate Israel from those false gods as he brought them out of Egypt. Then they came to Sinai, and God prepared them as His people. He wanted Israel to have a place of worship, a place that would display His presence with them. And as much as God wanted them to have a place of worship, I think that Israel was ready for it too. They wanted a place to worship God. This is the way that their faith would be built. At first, faith is needed, of course, because they couldn't see anything. But then, to build their faith... God gave them things they could see. God said, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Sanctuary means a consecrated place, a place that is set apart as sacred and holy. You can see that the word sanctify and sanctuary are closely related words. It's a consecrated place, a holy place. And so when Israel went to the sanctuary... They were on holy ground in the presence of God. There were many parts to the rituals God said they must do. And many of those rituals were about sanctification at the sanctuary. Wherever God is, wherever he's going to be worshipped, the place must be holy. And so Israel could not enter the holy without a representative. They approached God through a mediator. And that was the high priest. And this is a symbol that's carried over into the New Testament with Jesus Christ. Israel couldn't touch holy places. We, we don't have that restriction anymore. There, there are no places in this building that you can't touch. Except you might not want to touch the soundboard if you don't want your hands cut off. Don't do that. All, all of this, everything that we have here is symbolically cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But what that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean we ought to lose our reverence for this place... We ought not to lose our reverence for the God that we serve. Reverence should prevail whenever we come to worship God. That that reverence should be there through the reading of the Word, through prayer, through solemnity of the worship experience. We must recognize the holiness of God when we gather in His presence. This is a place of worship. I know Baptists are kings and queens of informality. But be careful how we come into the presence of the Holy God. Bow your head, hush your lips to self, magnify Jesus Christ. And may we come here reminded that we are God's people in God's place. This is where we worship and glorify him. Now the second aspect of the tabernacle is the presence of God. The types and the shadows, the figures, these were all useless unless God was there. The presence of God wasn't felt in worship when they came to the tabernacle. What comfort would it be? What good is there in it? How would they worship? How would they know God if He wasn't there? And how did they know that He was near and He was there? Oh, well, in the Old Testament, there wasn't the same understanding of the Holy Spirit and His indwelling presence. And so these visuals that were used, were crucial to Israel. God manifested His self Himself, himself uh, in a cloud. He manifested His Spirit by a cloud in the day that led them and a pillar of fire at night that protected them. When the tabernacle was set up in the camp, the cloud came in the day, the fire at night. It stood stationary over the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was housed and that symbolized that God was there. When Israel was ready to move, they packed up the tabernacle and the cloud moved. It went before them to lead them. And that was to show them God is still with them, that His Spirit was leading them where He wanted them to go. And you remember this, that when Israel finally crossed the Jordan, it was the Ark of the Covenant that went before them, and it was carried by the priests. And when they stepped into the water, the waters parted. And in the swelling of the flooded Jordan... They walked over on dry ground. This was God's presence with them. They carried the ark around Jericho for seven days. On the seventh day, the walls fell down flat. Israel had hope because God's presence was symbolized in the ark. Then years later, when the Philistines captured the ark, what did Israel fear the most? They said, Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. God gave them signs and symbols until they were no longer needed. Today, we see God and hear Him through the pages of Scripture. God is present in His holy book. He is made known to us through the infallible pages of His Word. The Holy Spirit uses the Word to show that He's in us. Paul wrote... Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so we find that the Word of Christ is the same as the Holy Spirit richly dwelling in us. And that's the way that Jesus Christ is present with us. He is with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the reason that we are so careful to study the Word of God that we get into it and we dig out everything that we can find about Jesus Christ because He dwells in us by the Word. Now, thirdly, the place of worship, presence of God, finally we have the pictures of Christ. The tabernacle is filled with pictures of Christ. If you could think back to our studies two years ago, nearly every sermon was titled with some picture of Christ that's found in tabernacle worship. And so we called the tabernacle a photo album of God's Son. Without the written word, in Moses' day, Israel was best or God best was best understood through the symbols. They couldn't pick up a Bible to read as we do today. There was nothing written for them to read. Job may have been written before the Pentateuch, probably was, but have you read a command for Israel to read the book of Job? We are told to remember Job, but I don't remember anything in the Pentateuch that says that they were to read the book of Job. They may have had it, they may not, I don't know. They learned through visual presentations. Instead, so instead of hearing about a sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago, like we hear about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, they made sacrifices. They experienced sacrifices every day. Adam and Eve saw God kill animals to clothe them. Lot did not hear a story about God's wrath. He saw fire and brimstone fall on Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham didn't hear about the love of God. He saw it demonstrated when he took Isaac up on Mount Moriah that God stopped his hand just as he was ready to plunge the dagger into Isaac. He turned and there was a ram that was caught in the thicket. And that ram was the substitute that God provided that took Isaac's place. Every Sunday school child knows what that is about. Isn't that thrilling? They saw... These concepts acted out. To everything, everything to them in the tabernacle was a picture of God. God emphasized holiness in everything they saw and did, and they respected it, and they were told not to touch it lest they die. So all these things, the location, the position of the camp, the materials of the buildings, the furnishings, the pillar of cloud, the sacrifices, all in some way spoke of God. They didn't have an idol as the heathens. God is not a dumb idol. God can't be pictured by an idol that doesn't speak, doesn't move, can't act, and has no power. An idol is a one-dimensional view, a representation of physical features of which God has none. On the other hand, the tabernacle was multidimensional. Go around it, look at it, examine it. As we study it, it seems like there's something new to be found at every corner that you turn and how different that was from the one-dimensional worship of egypt or of canaan's idols of stone god can never be captured in an idol the bible teaches that god is spirit As spirit he can't be seen and here here is the thing he can't relate to man on a purely personal level And so there were the visuals, there are pictures, and these pictures include what? The God-man who manifested the Father God on a personal level. How was God known personally before Christ came into flesh? There's the tabernacle. I mean, it's simply magnificent that God would, would give them this, how glorious it was, how blessed was Israel to be given the tabernacle, nobody else has this. These are the visuals that showed them God. Without the possession of the Holy Scriptures, this is the way that they were used to learning about God. The tabernacle showed them that God would come in a personal way. That there would be a visual manifestation of Him. And this visual would be in the person of Jesus Christ. And thus we have this vivid scripture written by John the Beloved. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. The tabernacle transcends that one page division in your Bible between the old and the new testaments. Some see that page and they say, well, I'm glad that's over. That's all done. It's, it's The old is over, and now we get to the real important stuff. And I would tell you, no, 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 no. The Old Testament laid the foundation for Jesus Christ. The foundation remains the anchor. This is the chief support pillar for the revelation of the Son of God. The Word tabernacled among us. Does that New Testament phrase many, mean... Anything at all without connecting it to a tent standing on the windswept sands of the desert? And yet for all the beauty and the representations of the Old Testament, it doesn't do very much good if there isn't a literal fulfillment of them. To bless us, there must be more than types and figures and shadows of the true. There must be the reality of heavenly things that they represent. The objects, the object of the symbols must come to show us that the figures represent something true. And thus, folks, there was Christmas. There was Christmas. God came to dwell with us. The Son of God was not a picture. He was flesh and bone born of the Virgin Mary. He was from the seed of the Holy Spirit. And he lives to do what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. That would be what Moses built. Which are figures of the true. But into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. The figures of the true are not close to being as valuable as the true. Gold and precious stones, ornamental works, fine fabrics, those aren't worth the real Son of God. The real living and true God, Jesus Christ, came into this world to die for us and to arise from the grave. And then he went into those holy places not made with human hands, there to appear in the presence of God for us. He was born for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He arose for us. And now he appears before the throne of God where one day we will also enter heaven to be in the presence of God forever. And then we shall dwell with God. We shall tabernacle with God. Blessed be God for the Christmas gift of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for your word. What we learn from the word. So much there that speaks of Jesus Christ. And it's what it's all about. This is what redemptive history is about. The story of Jesus begins in Genesis chapter 3. carries all the way through the Old Testament into the New, to the very last book of the Bible. And it's telling us about something that actually, really, did happen about the God-man who came to live on this earth to give himself as a sacrifice for unworthy sinners. And we're we're not ashamed to use biblical terms for this either. We're not ashamed to keep them in our songs when it says that Jesus Christ came to die for such a worm as I. Lord, we thank you that through the blood of Jesus and faith in him, we are made worthy. Worms that are made worthy to enter the presence of holy God. We thank you, Lord, that one day we will tabernacle with you. We will dwell with you. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bbaptist.org.